You're listening to episode 17 of the Propaganda Report with Monica Perez and Brad Binkley. On today's episode, rules for radicals, total information control, the allegory of the cave, and much more. Here's Monica. It has been a busy week and we have not done our podcast in a while because we have been doing the radio show on WSB. So there have been some episodes of the Propaganda Report that have live calls, a little bit of a different format. We're going to try to do both. We just uh, were getting back up to speed on that. So today, though, we are together uh, in studio doing the podcast only. So no opportunity to call, but you get a lot deeper a conversation going when you're not interrupted by commercials all the time. So get ready. We What's really been in the news a lot this week was the Russian hacking, the Electoral College, whatever has, um, you know, a lot of implications of that. I think that the Russian hacking story has some serious legs and we're going to get into all of that in today's show. And uh, what do you think, Binkley? Should we just hit the ground running? Let's go for it. Let's dive in. Okay. In this Hitler thing, was this guy I went out with was a Jewish guy who was still rich and powerful in Germany many years later. And he was a book collector. And he had all this stuff from the 30s and 40s. Some of it was in English. And the propaganda, the campaign propaganda, was kind of crazy. Like, if you looked at the Trump stuff, it would seem kind of crazy. And you laugh at it because it's kind of like propaganda and that kind of thing. And you're like, this is exaggeration or it's meant to be ambiguous and whatever. It's an act, blah, blah. But if you – if, say, Trump turns out to be a complete unbelievable fascist – you're going to be able to go back. I mean, it's his thing anyway. You could go back and and create any legacy out of the millions of things he said. But you're going to be able to go back and blame his supporters because you're going to say he said all this stuff. And let me give you an example that made me crazy. I was visiting my friend and another friend of ours was with me. And I said to her, people look at Trump and they're worried that he's a racist. But the real problem is that he's going to attack the Bill of Rights and nobody's focused on that. And she said, well, some of us were. <laughs> and I started laughing because she is absolutely, positively never focused on the Bill of Rights in her entire life. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that, I was like, and I said, but Hillary was going to be just as bad for the Bill of Rights. Like, what are you even talking about? So she's already painting Trump and Trump supporters as having telegraphed their fascist, you know, Holocaust themed administration when we all think that the stuff about Trump is just, you know, excessive. It's just exaggerated. The the legacy in in their minds is already – it doesn't matter what he does. His legacy is already determined in a good number of people's minds. But I'm saying that I think he is (laughs) – there's a chance that he is – absolutely Mussolini, that he is putting in banksters and generals and corporatists at the highest levels in the mold of pure fascism. And nobody, like what you just said, is an example of like not really focusing on that, that it really is that. And 
when if it really happens and it's really that bad, the people who dismissed it all as mumbo jumbo are going to be blamed for having wanted it. So is that what they did in Germany? They they blame the people who Well, you can go back and say that they blame Germans, okay, for Hitler, even though he was financed by Wall Street. But and had whatever gets really, really dark when you dig deep on the British and the United States and Israel. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there were some some recently a a, um, member of parliament in England was absolutely lambasted because he said that Hitler worked with Israel to get Jews to move from Germany to Israel because that's what both of them wanted. Yeah. I was listening to Jim Mars earlier today. He was talking about that exact same thing. Really? Yeah. But but what I'm saying, so now Germany is basically controlled just by the Holocaust, the way the U.S. is controlled by the legacy of slavery. And you can blame the people. You can blame the people in Germany for having wanted everything Hitler gave them because it's in the record that he telegraphed that stuff. But if you ask people who were alive then, they would say, I didn't even... Realized I didn't even focus on that. I just was focused on him getting the trains to run on time. We were in a disastrous situation. We had hyperinflation, and this guy was going to whip stuff into shape. I I wasn't focused on anything else, and that you know, yeah. and 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 that's what I see an unbelievable parallel with that. Just like with the Italy with the France truck bombing thing and the German one. It's like last year the France thing happened in the summer had like the exact same narrative, the same kind of truck, the same kind of event. I mean, down to dragged some people 80 feet. So they just take narratives and programs that worked before and transport them into, you know, another scenario. But That's the same thing they do with, yeah. with war propaganda. They use the same atrocity stories. Yeah. They've been using the same stories for 300 years. They're using the same pictures <laughs> across that, like the Noah Posner thing came up in, he was a Sandy Hook victim who was also a Pakistan school massacre victim. The actual yeah. same photograph, identical photograph, not the same kid, the same photograph of the same kid. Right. So, uh, and this thing, what they're doing in Europe right now is actually called Gladio B. That's what made Sibel Edmonds famous was that she outed, I think, if I got the story right, she outed Gladio B as a real operation. So Gladio A, we talked about in the strategy of tension where they they left people behind after World War II to commit terrorist acts and blame them on communists so that communists would lose in elections. Right. Gladio B is to do the same thing, but use uh, Islamic terrorism to influence the politics of Europe and the United States. And yeah. so that's what's actually happening right now. That's the new fear. That's the new anti-communism used to be the thing. Now it's anti, um, I guess, Islam. Yes, and I guess Islamic terrorism, anyway. Yes, and the end game, I believe, is political union, a centralized world government, which is what this Laswell book that you recommended to me is unbelievable. Page Turner, National Security and Individual Liberty, I think it's called. Yeah, what a page turner! Uh, yeah, this, most of his yeah. stuff is. Yeah, it's amazing, and it starts with it's. It tells you who's behind it. That's at the and 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 in a footnote 
Uh, it's like the head of four, the head of, you know, it's like big ag, big auto, like everything is in there. And, but in the beginning, the introduction is, it, it actually says the reason the Soviet Union is a problem is that they are the ones who are preserving international anarchy. And what we really need is a world government. Right. And his, his book, he wrote the book that I was, that I've talked about quite a bit, World Revolutionary Propaganda. And that book is about how the communists are trying to spread their spread their version of one world government across the across the world so it's that there's two competing factions there i was thinking about that in regards to putin the other day cuz putin could very well be a nationalist who's opposing the globalist as as we define them but he also most likely wants to spread his his version of of russian nationalism across the globe I, you know, I'm going back and forth on the real nature of Russia, Putin, and this threat. I go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And there, and I always end up, you know, as the pendulum swings, one point or another, I'm always going to end up back at the big, the, the ultimate goal is it always has been, or has at least since the, for a hundred years, and definitely since the end of World War II, world government. And Putin and Russia have been, you know, it's hard to say under the Soviet Union how much they were working towards that. But I am saying with Putin, who is installed by Yeltsin, who is installed by Clinton, basically, uh, knows what's going on and might take orders, but might just play along in order to get a bigger piece of the pie. That, that could be so. What I was saying about that other book is that uh, that other book is all about how the Soviets were trying to establish their one world government under the, the, the Soviet utopia. And they were in a basically in a battle with the other, you know, the other factions that are spreading one want to spread one world government. So it was uh, these conflicting conflicting factions both wanting to spread all over the globe and this book talked about how nationalism was one of the ways to defeat other international um, elites who are trying to spread global government so you, you know you, you'd stop it by creating nationalist fervor within your country but then that leader and in, in the case of this book the Soviets is trying to spread their version of, of, of essentially a world nationalism. But that's how they stop the other globalists. They they create nationalist fervor, but that doesn't mean they're not that doesn't mean they're not trying to dominate the world in their own right. But there is a uh, a weird layer to that onion when you go back to the USSR because there's a book on my nightstand which I haven't gotten to yet called or I flipped through it, but it's called Major Jordan's Diaries, and I, I've read summaries about it. Major Jordan saw. The U.S. sending arms and other classified stuff that the USSR, we didn't want them to have or shouldn't have wanted them to have, sending stuff to the USSR. There's also this, uh, I think, a very, I think, a valid theory that Robert Oppenheimer, who gave, worked on the Manhattan Project and gave the Soviets the bomb, was really doing that for our defense companies so that they would have something to escalate against and that people like Alger Hiss, when when you had the Manchurian Candidate, which was a novel that reflected 
everything from MK Ultra to McCarthyism, MK Ultra being the mind control operation of the CIA and McCarthyism being the House on American Activities Committee of Joe McCarthy saying there are so many communists in the State Department. Alger Hiss was one of those communists who was accused by Whitaker Chambers, the book that Chambers wrote called Witness, beautiful, fantastic book, great, it was written so well. And Alger Hiss ended up going to jail as a communist, which right. redeemed Whitaker Chambers and McCarthy. But uh, a but side some note people, there, uh, I don't mean to interrupt you. A side note yeah. there, he actually moved to Vermont when he got out of jail with a whole bunch of other communists not far from where Bernie Sanders moved to when he got uh, out of college. That is so funny. And, yeah, they say he was a true believer, like was not living high on the hog. I mean that's the thing that is kind of hard to take. And I've gotten some flack on Facebook for – Criticizing Michelle Obama for having 44 attendants and traveling around the world at millions and millions and millions of dollars of taxpayers' money wearing these insane dresses because she isn't the whole lefty thing, equality. And, I mean, nobody can have any of that, uh, and she's not even really earning it. But but just the punchline on the, on the Alger Hiss thing and all that was that everybody calls those people communists, but – if you take the onion another layer, we are really getting back to the globalists that start with people like Cecil Rhodes and John D. Rockefeller and Rothschild and J.P. Morgan and the Round Table and the Council of Farm Relations, all this stuff that was kind of incubated at least 100 years ago that that it wasn't so much communist, but it was this the shadow government thing and that it operated – as early as uh, the Bolshevik Revolution, even in Russia, which is right. Anthony Sutton's books. And communism is the way they, they, they draw up fervor and the way they, they get people to follow them. Uh, but, but like, yeah, you're right. The ideology is simply, you know, world government. Hil- Hillary Clinton's mentor, Saul Linsky, in his book, he talks about how and, and all propaganda books talk about this actually is they say you must never believe the ideology that you're you're pitching to people. Never ever buy into the stuff you're selling because if you do that you'll become too rigid and you won't be able to get anything done. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. Go. That that is what the guy said in that the Russian defector had just posted called fascinating video on propaganda yeah. report daily. Dot com that he said the true believers are the ones you have to go in and kill because if once you take over, like that's what Stalin did, you have to purge the true believers because they're just going to stand in your way from what you really want to achieve, which is power. But I have a question for you. What is it? Why uh, do you call Saul Alinsky Hillary's mentor? Well, she talks a lot about him. I've seen her do some interviews about him, and she wrote a paper on him. And I think she might have even called him. I think she called him his mentor in an interview that right. I saw. Okay, because she, Bill Clinton called Carol Quigley his mentor, the guy who wrote Tragedy right. of Hope. Yeah, and I think Obama called Brzezinski his mentor. Oh, really? Yes. How do you like that? That's interesting. Uh, another interesting fact with the Hillary Solinsky thing is she was being interviewed about him. I can't remember the year, but she was trying to distinguish herself, trying to separate herself from him because uh, Alinsky was, you know, he's perceived in a negative light uh, by a lot of the media, which I reading because his book. Because of Glenn Beck. Yeah, yeah, Maybe exactly. Not. But a lot, a lot of this, you know, a lot of the stuff you read his book, it's he is a, 
he's going to do the opposite of what the establishment does in everything, and he jokes around a lot. So a lot of the stuff he says, and some people are going to take it literally. I didn't perceive a lot of the stuff about his Satan worshiping because people say that he worships Satan and stuff. I didn't perceive the comments he made as being literal to that. I perceived them as him being just intentionally trying to piss people off because he talks about how he, he demonizes himself so that he can look like a hero to the to the oppressed. Because if he if he can make the establishment paint him as a demon, then he can get the oppressed people, all of them, to follow him in an instant. And that's what he that's what he did. That's what he was doing all the time. You know, that makes me wonder about the Satanist stuff. There's so much occultism, so much Satanism. You can't get away from it. I just read a, a book about Jack Parsons who was instrumental in founding JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, and he California, and he was a uh, an, an affiliate of Aleister Crawley. Like he actually engaged in heavy duty satanic stuff, and yeah. I see satanic symbolism, especially in the music industry. There are tons of videos about the Illuminati and music industry, but right. I'm just telling you, when I go to the Grammys, there is a, all but one time, and maybe I just even missed it that time, there's one and maybe even two satanic uh, acts, acts that perform satanic rituals. Oh, Black I totally stuff. I'm believe telling it. you. Yeah. No, so, yeah. so does I'm anybody really, do they believe in Satan, or are they just doing that to control these young people who who are really literally uh, feel like they're selling the souls to the devil? I think it's going to be a little bit of what um, I was saying a second ago that uh, Solinsky said is some of them are going to totally believe it and, and buy into it, and even the people that they influence are going to. But there's also going to be those who simply use it as a tool for manipulation. Well, if you look at the Pizzagate thing where they had a performance artist using body fluids for rituals. Now, that, those are powerful tools right. in rituals if you really read the stuff. But the way they present it, you can easily dismiss it as performance art, which makes me think that the Pizzagate – People get really mad at this, but – and yeah. I don't know what's true. It could be that it's true and it's used as a PSYOP. It could yeah, be that they, they they actually did it all and still exposed it knowing that it was so excessive or exaggerating it so that it would be dismissed. But the right. impact is you look at it and say, yeah, they're just, they're just artsy-fartsy weirdos who write on the wall with red paint and call it blood like, uh, you know, like goth teens – Right, and I, I think I mean I I think that there are definitely some some Satanists that uh, are involved in these groups, and I think with the I, I agree that it's a psyop and it could very well be real. I haven't researched it enough to know completely. I the group of people that's involved in it, they are definitely connected to pedophiles even outside of Pizzagate. So it wouldn't. I mean, How do it you wouldn't know? I mean, Hillary Clinton is. Is at the center of this whole oh, thing. Oh, right, because of the Jeffrey Epstein thing. Yeah. But weren't you saying that the Comet Pizza guy also was very highly suspicious, or is that? I mean, he, he, comes, he comes off as very suspicious when that's you research part of him. It. You know, yeah. that's the art of ambiguity thing that I that that is essential. If it's not ambiguous, if it's Jeffrey Epstein, if it's not ambiguous, then it's not interesting. They don't pick up on it. Why? Why do they only like it's with? The Zimmerman case and every single black versus blue thing, every single solitary one is ambiguous on right. purpose just to be divisive. Same thing with the Russian hacking. They they get up and uh, we did this on 
the WSB show this past week, which will be up soon. That'll be episode 16 of the Propaganda Report. We talked about how the CIA and Obama, and uh, the stuff that they're saying is, oh, we, we're confident it's Russia because of the MO. <laughs> right. like, You're confident it's Russia because of the MO. Don't you have the most powerful surveillance network that ever existed? I mean, haven't you lied to us plenty of times before? Yeah. And the secretary of state of Georgia had an election hack that he immediately traced to a specific computer, which was run by the U.S. government. So why? How do you not know? That's that's, the only verifiable hacking claim. Yes. This is the one into Georgia. This this one about Russia. It's just a bunch of it's a bunch of hearsay. and, And just trust us. It's true. But I could even say this. It's even possible that they have tons and tons of evidence, but they won't give it to make people uh, crazy, to make the wrong people take the wrong side. I feel like that's what happened with Obama's birth certificate, that he has a real birth certificate for Hawaii, and they deliberately posted a fake one because they did post a fake one. You saw the the recent police officer I I saw what you sent me. It was Sheriff Arpaio, right? Yeah. He he says he's got it, but he's – Trump used that too, always in the background, this theme of illegitimacy. But I I saw an expose or a speculation, I guess, that Karl Rove was the – was he the mastermind behind it? That that they, they all kind of conspired to promote that meme just to keep people uh, at odds with each other, especially over Obama, and that right. Obama played along to make the right look paranoid. Right. And with Pizzagate, the same thing is going on because if they really wanted to clear out like – they talk about the danger. Fake news is, is going to cause real da- – I mean fake CNN is fake news. Fox News is fake news every day. But they're ta- if they really wanted to diffuse that danger associated with that restaurant, they would get John Podesta on one of the main networks, and they would say, look – these emails that you wrote clearly have code language in them. There's there's absolutely no doubt that you're using this as code words. You can't come to any other conclusion when you read these emails. Right, because so, you just don't split a piece of pizza eight ways. Right. It doesn't – it's or whatever. I mean, stuff it's, like that. It was stuff like that. It's crazy, and it, it could mean any number of things. But if you just – why don't you just clear this up for us, and maybe even we'll walk through the uh, the – the pizza place, not not just show a door or something, but we'll show f- right. that would take one day to go do down that. the stairs, go up yeah. into the attic. And not to mention that the FBI does use the presence of code words. I believe that's uh, possibly probable cause of crime is to see communications that clearly don't make sense, that obviously are used to mask real activity, which implies uh, illegal or unethical behavior. Exactly. I mean, they're they're covering something up. There's something they don't want us to know. I mean, I'm not saying it's a good thing that law enforcement uses innuendo and stuff, but they do. That's how they do a lot of drug busts. If you say elbow and and it clearly means LB, you know, that's going to refl- throw up a flag. Right. And, and anybody who's ever, at least I've been told, anybody who's ever dealt in the exchange of drugs has used code words. <laughs> That was a good save. Isn't it? What are you to, talking about? Is that deliberately ambiguous? Oh, yeah. I've never. Not me. I know you're straight. I bet you you don't even drink. Seriously. I, like I, I used to when I was in college, but not so much anymore. Uh, I used to love to throw back a few shots every now and then, but now I stick to water. 
You stick to coffee. Coffee, exactly. I actually got an email to that effect. Like, Binkley needs to slow down on the coffee. What? Are you serious? I'm dead serious. <laughs> what, what, what <laughs> I didn't that? even realize. I was like, really? What makes you think he drinks a lot of coffee? So I texted just like, hey, do you drink a lot of coffee? And then I realized you're That's always texting me. me you're always texting me from a coffee shop. <laughs> How did they know? Was I talking way too fast? Well, that's or something? the thing. I didn't really catch it because I never. I'm always talking over you anyway, so I don't know. <sighs> ah, I get really, really excited sometimes, and that might make people say he is drinking way too much coffee. But you are, in fact, drinking way too much coffee. Yeah, but I, I do that even <laughs> if I'm not drinking. Ever since you know. You're saying you're always drinking way too much coffee, and only when you're excited can you. Does it come out in uh, agitated tones? Possibly, I I don't know. Okay, are you drinking coffee right now? Yes, I am. (laughs) See. (laughs) Uh, So, I wanted to touch on this: the deeper purposes of the Russian hacking that. One thing that we talked about last week, which was coming down the pipe, was the Electoral College was – they took their vote yesterday, Monday, December 19th. And they – and, oh, Austin tweeted me that Georgia had a bill in the House in 2016, the state legislature, that called for – getting on board for a movement to abolish the Electoral College. So that concept had been in the works already. Maybe it's always in the works, but it had already been in the works. So that was interesting to me. But the Electoral College convened on Monday, voted. Trump won it. I didn't see any headlines about it, but I think we would have if he didn't. And the the Russian hacking was used First of all, it was generated by Podesta. Podesta said the Russians hacked my email and they were talking about Russians hacking the DNC and all that kind of stuff. And one thing it was used for was to tell electors that it would be okay not to vote for Trump because it was illegitimate to be influenced by those hacked emails because they were hacked by Russia. So that was the big, that was what they call the presenting issue or the first the, the, what it looked like, why that Russian hacking stuff was in the news. You, but, you did, did you, you did yeah, notice that Hillary Clinton lost more? I saw, I heard that. Than that Trump was such did. a that was such a cute, cute little touch. <laughs> <laughs> I I would think these things are. I, I don't know how orchestrated they are, but they just seem so orchestrated. So when she lost a couple, I figure I I don't know. My head really, I really. My thinking has been turned upside down by Trump's victory. I saw so many signs, but I could not get my mind around it. And now I'm really questioning how deep the rabbit hole goes, much deeper than I thought, which I didn't even realize was possible or I would have been there. Right. Well, I I think with this, I was looking at that video again where those celebrities were telling people to be a hero and and change their vote or telling the the whole world, even though there was just like literally 306 Trump electors whose names were known and they're making videos that are getting millions of hits. And Saturday Night Live, just just not even trying to be funny. I mean, they're just terrible. Uh, Yeah, they, they 
jump John Stewart. They jumped the shark. It's all John Stewart like, style. Right. It's all. I, I felt like I'm like, man, they are trying to make people just hate them. Is what this feels like. And, and to me, that that's what to me oh, I think wow. that influenced yeah. people who might have otherwise, who might have. Uh, ben Hillary, they might they were Democratic electors that might have made them go. I'm tired of this. I'm yeah, gonna flip being to told Bernie. what to do, being pressured. Right. But I, I just says I wonder when John Stewart's going to run for Senate of New York. I got to uh, figure see. that's coming. And I just there's like virtually nothing that makes me more bummed out than to see uh, clownish people turn to politics it just they in brazil there actually is a clown like a makeup clown who's a congressman and uh it's just the jumping the shark i mean the it's democracy fitting, though. It's jumps kinda, the shark it's it's it, not it's, hiding behind the mask it's wearing uh, the mask it's yeah it's a little it's a little mocking but anyway i think that this russian theme especially when i'm reading these laswell books from the cold war it, it when the book i'm reading is from 1950 and he talks about how things are going to unfold as this crisis goes on decade after decade and how we're going to need more defense and we're going to have to cut back on the freedoms even at the local level and how the U.S. government's going to need to take over more land because all of a sudden national security becomes a part of the very fiber of our society and it will give the government more and more power. I mean, it's really crazy. National security and individual liberty, I believe, by Laswell. Really, it's so – so at the time, I was raised by – my father was a World War II veteran and a real anti-communist. He used to put business cards that said, don't buy these shoes. They were made in China. They used to call them uh, card parties. Go to the shoe store and slip them in there, and they'd get run out of the shoe store. People would be upset. But they were staunch anti-communists. They used to work for William F. Buckley when he started the National Review. My mother, when she met him, said – Nice to meet you, Father. Like he was a priest. Isn't that funny? Yeah. So he, so my parents were all about the Red Scare. I mean, we had dried food in the garage, all of that stuff. So my family were true believers on that. But when I go back and read this book and I see the language basically paralleling, obviously today's language parallels that language, and maybe that was real and they're just using it for uh today's purposes but it looks like such propaganda when i go back and see that they were really just setting us up for this massive uh uh expenditures defense expenditures that's what it was really all about seems like to me and then so now when i see it repeating when i see them focusing on russia as this big boogeyman i I I feel like it's to set us up with with a really formidable enemy that we are we are supposed to throw all our weight behind. The the funny thing is though, if you dig into the numbers, we spend five hundred six hundred billion dollars a year, apples to apples, to Russia's seventy billion dollars a year in defense spending. I, if I rattle off the world defense numbers to you you will realize that the United States could literally take on the entire rest of the world, enemies and allies included, and beat them if you're ju- if you're equating power with money spent. And it's cumulative. So, I mean, it has to be somewhat cumulative. So year after year after year after year after decade after decade, the U.S. spends all of this money and more than everybody else combined, and we're supposed to be afraid of Russia, who spends like close to a tenth of what we spend. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that, yeah, it's yeah. just, but that's what they're doing because it's better than ISIS who, that doesn't even have a piece of land or a ship. Right. right? It's, so, not a, it's not an easy enemy, enemy to identify. And that's what they're, you're right. That's what they're doing. They've done this over and over again. They did this in the 80s too. They, I mean, we were already fighting with them, but they, they got the media to help them demonize Russia even more on some issues that ended up be, in fact, it was an, there was an assassination attempt on uh, Pope John Paul II, I believe. Yeah, for sure. I remember and, that. And Same they, year as Reagan. Yeah, they pinned that on they they pinned that on Russia without much evidence, and it came out later that that there was no there was no links to the guy who who did it. He wasn't connected to Russia. They 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 like they interrogated him. They got him to confess and stuff, but they did that you know in like behind closed doors, and then. Later on, the archives came out, and they, they they couldn't find any connections. What was his what was his real story? I can't remember what country he came from, but it was not Russia. They they just said that he he went through Russia and he was radicalized or something like that, and that he he was acting on behalf of or, or the Soviet Union rather. He was acting on behalf of the Soviet Union, and. When they they opened up some of the Soviet Union's archives, I I don't I'm not telling the the story as well as I should because I just recently read it. Um, yeah, but the but guy you know, was you not. Know, there's the Venona papers is what those archives were, and that, they, yeah, that's there was the just papers, this brief right. window. Yeah, they're so I. Uh, they really exonerate Joe McCarthy. He was like right about everything, and. Uh, but he really, I think he died of alcoholism or something after that. But but I just wrote a little tiny little article about Joe McCarthy. Roy Cohen was his lawyer, and he was also Donald Trump's lawyer. Right. And now we're seeing, and so my mother always loved Roy Cohen because she loved Joe McCarthy, and then she loved Donald Trump. Uh, I think she just feels like they're all fighting the good fight. But I have been noticing references to this new McCarthyism and actual behavior, new McCarthyism behavior. Chuck Schumer is leading the charge against China for having soft power influence in Hollywood. And there's actually just like the House Un-American Activities Committee. There's like CFIUS, the Council of Foreign Intelligence. US, I don't know what it is, but it's CFIUS. They are leading the charge in Congress against foreign infiltration of our entertainment. And hey, there is a way to look at this stuff as saying, yeah, that's what you need to do for national security, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that the Democrats are doing it, who use McCarthyism as this uh, like equivalent to uh, the devil, you know, <laughs> why they are the ones who are uh, basically the new McCarthyites, it's uh, hypocritical, let's say. Well, to a certain extent, yeah. But the people at the top are the ones directing it, and they direct the influences, the the energy that's that's available in society, in whatever the way they need to. It goes back to uh, what Alinsky says: it's not you don't ever get drunk off the ideology that you're manipulating people with because you might have to switch. Yeah. So, so you like that rules for radicals? You're reading, right? Yeah. I was totally disappointed in that. You like it? I, yeah, I think it's I think it's uh, it's definitely telling into. Um, I can see Hillary Clinton. I can see Barack Obama. I, I mean, really, it's just a, it's the same stuff that Edward Bernays wrote. It's just written from the opposite side. And he it's uh, so Alinsky, simplistic, though. It's just right. you know what I mean. I feel like there's no smoking guns. Whereas this Laswell stuff and the propaganda stuff, and even Bernays, and um, uh, is just so much more. This is how you do it. 
and well, his he was kind of like he gets some tactical stuff like the way that he shuts down you know the way that he shuts down a bank and gets them to give him what he wants without like having everybody well, ha- yeah. having like he gives a, a yeah. whole bunch of different tactics that he, yeah. he uses tactics. which is very interesting yes that's the difference right i'm more interested in strategy which is what all these big picture guys are and yeah. tactics his tactical stuff, there there were a couple of things that did strike a chord with me. One was where he said, if you if you're wrong, just ignore that and still work with like whatever your outcome is. So right. that like so when I heard Ash Carter saying that we have to unseat Assad because of ISIS, it's just completely illogical because ISIS is fighting Assad and Assad is fighting ISIS. And we should fight with Assad to defeat ISIS and worry about Assad later. And he just was like, no, it's not. It doesn't work that way. (laughs) Yes, it does. (laughs) Alinsky says, I mean, he says, don't, you you know, if you get held up on morals and principles, then you're never going to get any. That's essentially what he says. It's just logic. They're getting held up. You know, it's not even getting held up on logic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What, What does he say? At one point, he says he was working on something. Uh, he was like organizing a group of people, and somebody in that group came to him and said, "Look, I have this information about one of the people that that was the uh, corporation they were trying to they were trying to bring down or stop. I can't remember exactly, but he goes, one of the guys uh, of our opposition is he's he likes boys. He's he's gay. And Alinsky in the book says, I told him we don't do that kind of thing. And then the next paragraph, he goes, however, had we been up against a wall and it was our only option, I would have taken that information in a second. I would have blasted it all over the media. But, <laughs> but in that moment, yeah. we didn't need it. So I was going to so I told him that we don't do that kind of thing. So that's when he was talking about how principles, if you have principles, yes, you're stuck yes. to a certain ideology, then you're going to. Oh, that is pretty scary. Like if you think and that does make sense, too, because uh, with Hillary, when you think she's was always held up to be the person uh, like she, they always talk about her having worked for the children defense, children's defense fund. And I think that was like back to back with, or even possibly simultaneous with her defending that guy who raped the 12 year old brutally raped her and get it, got her off really went, went bent over backwards. Hillary did flew to New York, uh, eagerly took advantage of real evidence that had been misplaced and just yeah, whatever. It's all a career opportunity. Yeah, so I look at that as being so without principles and also like the Nixon thing when she broke the rules and uh, when she was part of what, the Watergate investigation? What was it that she – do you remember what the what her role yeah. was? She was she, a lawyer who got fired for taking she papers was working from with. She was colluding with Ted Kennedy, I believe, to try and prevent Nixon from getting impeached because it would have been easier for Ted Kennedy to come in and win the presidency if he was going up against Nixon. Well, that can't be true because or whoever was Nixon running for was in his second term. Well, it was going to be easier for them to win. I don't. That was the whole. That was the. That was the philosophy behind it. Is if Nixon okay, stayed so you, in power, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Then, so do then you think you were saying she was trying to get him to not be impeached? Yeah, she was trying That's to crazy. prevent him from being impeached because she was working with Ted Kennedy because they yeah, thought it would help the Democratic sense. Party. 
That's interesting. And she was rooming with William Weld at that time. At that which, time, really? <laughs> Shacking up yeah. with him? Well, no, but um, in the office, officing, I guess. But it's just that whole Libertarian Party thing. What a terrible, <laughs> wasted opportunity this year's presidential run by Gary Johnson and William Weld was. I don't know. It just makes me sad. It's a farce. So, it was a farce. But anyway, can we talk a little bit about what the Russian hacking, what not just the Russian hacking, but the whole idea of having Russia. One thing I wanted to point out was to have Russia as this big enemy. I'm trying to figure out why, how this plays in. So Secretary of State is going to be Rex Tillerson, uh, assuming that he passes muster gets approval who's the head of exxon which is uh, you can't i can't describe it any other way but the fox guarding the hen house if if the way to corrupt our foreign policy is to have it hijacked by the military industrial complex which i define as energy banking and defense putting the head of exxon in front of in charge of how we deal with the middle east is it's it's really it is, in my mind, the equivalent of fascism if it plays out the way right. it looks inevitable to play. I mean, real fascism where you have, like, generals and corporatists shoulder to shoulder using the power of the state for, you know, law and order and uh, enriching oligarchs. So if it comes out that way, that's where it is. But he is being touted as this guy who has close ties to Russia and um, and – the whole Russian hacking thing was all about Putin trying to get Trump elected. And, uh, and I, and it all came to, I actually said this on the WSB show on Saturday about how I wouldn't be surprised if this whole thing is going to be used as cover for world, for, for Trump being able to basically start world, world war three and say, well, it's not like I was egging or itching for it or whatever. I didn't want it, but because I like Russia, I just, they were unbearable. I was wrong. Just like Hillary would have said that about Muslims. I didn't want to continue to drop 20,000 bombs a year on Syria and Iraq. I love those people, but I just, I had to, uh, to save them or whatever. So that maybe we're headed towards this world war three and this friendliness is giving right cover. And I, I heard Thomas Massey, I think his name is a Kentucky congressman who I believe is a real libertarian or certainly a liberty leaning Republican saying, well, Trump's no libertarian, but at least we're not going to have war with Russia. So that makes me happy. And I was like, wow, okay, that could be like <laughs> reverse foreshadowing, just like when Woodrow Wilson or was it FDR? One of them said, ran on the ticket of mothers, your sons will not fight in foreign wars. And then, I, of course, I mean, they, they both ran on on neutrality. Did they? OK, yeah. yeah. So that's that's what I think that the you, politicians, especially in the two party system, are best at giving people the opposite of what they want because they give cover. So you're going to get. A, a warfare state without resistance from someone like Obama. And you're going to get a welfare state without resistance from someone like George W. Bush, which is really what you got with those guys. They gave you more of what the other side would have given you than you would have let the other side get away with. Right. Because it silences, it silences your side. So well, exactly. you silence the anti-war left or you silence the anti 
war, welfare right, you give left cover or right cover to whatever right. it is. Well, here, here's what they do is, is they play to that specific intrinsic need or that, 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 that fear that people have or whatever's going on. And they, the people don't see it as, they don't see it as war. They don't see it. They see it as, oh, we have to do it to to help these people. Or they don't see it as, um, you know, welfare. They see it as finally, like you said a few weeks ago, finally somebody's helping us out. So it, it, it takes people from looking looking at the big picture and by triggering those specific needs that people have at the moment, it gets people thinking about you know short term, not realizing that they're accepting what they so frequently oppose when the other side accepts. Does that make sense? Mm. It's, Can you give me it, one more sentence <laughs> in a nutshell? Basically, like you said a while ago, the conservative welfare state, Trump played to the fact that people in middle America um, are feeling pain right now. And he played to that pain that they need jobs, that they're getting laid off or, or whatever. And he's going to implement programs, which is essentially going to be government, uh, you know, the equivalent of Job government programs. handouts. Yeah, yeah but, but while – if the, if the same thing happened on the left, these very same people would say that's yeah. welfare. But because it's happening to them and it's triggering their specific emotional needs, it, the frame of reference changes, and they don't see it as that. So that's like that's how and they it's hide. Being, from it. I noticed it was being presented as uh, distinguishing, and this was such a top down thing. It was so the media, these uh, conservative socialists, or what do you want to call them? pushing it down to distinguish between entitlements and handouts. Yeah, they like changed the name. That, yeah, but the things that you paid into, like Social Security and Medicare, were entitlements. You were entitled to them because you paid for them, whereas welfare and Medicaid were handouts because you're just poor and didn't deserve it. Right. So it, it was stuff like that to try to say a welfare state is fine, but you have to it's it's that it's that same old thing that I keep coming back to. It's the European version of conservatism, which is a combination of nationalism, uh fascism and a well-run or a promise to be efficient welfare state. Right. And they they gain acceptance uh they gain acceptance from the public by appealing to those emotional needs by, you know, changing the language up a little bit and then by blinding people to reason because they're triggering those um, deeply felt pains. Yeah. It, this thing kind of bugs me and let's talk about it for a second. I, I see, I, I was talking about it ad nauseum during the election that I would just read article after article after article in the wall street journal telling, they actually had a, a series called The Great Unraveling, What Led to Trump. They kept saying what led to Trump, and they would keep giving you the same answer over and over again. It's that the middle America feels left behind, and the government needs to spend more money to bring them back. And the right, Republican voters, traditional, the, every not everybody who voted for Romney, but probably every single person voted for Romney, was considered themselves a small government fiscal conservative. Tea Partiers, that entire revolution, was about that being the only issue, taxed enough already. That was it. And that big government, right, wants wants to transform us into, or the, the right in general, into 
the European right, which is no right at all. It's nationalism and uh, a welfare state. But I'm asking you, can you, in your opinion, to me, it's so artificial. It's so pushed down. Can you just by misdefining people's uh, fears or, you know, can you tell people what they think or feel you know, can you shape their ideas just by telling them it's so? I mean, how how much influence do they have? Because I would say the problem is too much government, not not too little government, and everybody on my side knows it. And they're saying, no, no, you're wrong. Everybody on your side just wants their piece of the pie. And and everyone and it seems to me that the majority of people are accepting that that's behind the Trump phenomenon. And that's just not what I saw with the Ron Paul revolution, the liberty movement, Tea Party, all the stuff that really got the right going four years ago. What what are you what are you asking again? I'm asking. I think this is not a true answer. I think that they are saying that that middle America voted for Trump because they want him to bring jobs back. Uh, They want him to use government for them, that that's what is driving them. And I'm saying this, 50, 60 million people vote Democrat, 50, 60 million vote Republican every election cycle. Every single time in the past, those 50 or 60 million people were small government conservatives who wanted – personal and economic liberty, yes, the foreign policy thing got muddled up, but they would always pay service, the Tea Party, everything. That's what those 50 or 60 million people, yes, sometimes it was 58, not 62, and that's why you lose all the time. But they are saying, is it just those extra 4 million that actually won the vote? Because it's it's to me, it's not true that 60 million people on the right want government to be used for them they want government to get out of the way i I agree yeah yeah, but i I don't think they told this and people are repeating it on fox and cnn on left and right are we in a year from now is everyone going to just forget that we used to have principles of small government well, I, I don't. Are they going to believe it? Are they going to smoke the Kool Aid during during smoke the Kool Aid? Not possible. <laughs> during the election, people weren't thinking in those in those terms. People were thinking in terms of, first of all, anger. They Trump did a good job of 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 bringing people's anger to the to the forefront, and then saying, "I understand you." They felt understood by him. He spoke and he spoke in ways that that they could relate to. He was far more relatable to his target audience than Hillary Clinton was to hers. He 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 had a swagger to him. He he drew out emotions, especially when the crowd was there. But and he wasn't talking in terms of big government, small government. He was talking, "I understand you. This is bullshit." I'm going to help you fix this. You deserve this. So he wasn't saying I'm going to bring the government in to do it. He was saying he did I did a little you. bit. I mean, he did a little bit. This is where I go back to uh, the thing where he says all this stuff. But and that was the can't... logical part of it, though. And the logical part of it is it compares nothing to the emotional aspect of it. And the emotional aspect of it was I understand you. These other people haven't understand you. They've been screwing you over for long enough. I'm from outside of the. I, I'm not with these people. I'm with you guys, and I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to. I'm going to fix this for you. So that was the emotional part. And by the time the the logical, let's think about this. This would actually mean bigger government. That that doesn't stand a chance when those powerful emotions are activated. 
Yeah, I, I, I gotcha. I just feel like it's like two people about to how make many people passionate are doing love, that? <laughs> passionate yes. love, and then stopping and going, okay, let's sit down and do a pro con list. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, that imagery kind of <laughs> threw me off of my <laughs> what I was thinking, but I, I feel like. The, I don't know. I just don't get it. I just don't. I'm where, where did it's rational? We rationalize everything. Like we're so good. Humans are so good at rationalize everything. And so we don't see it. We we don't, when there's that cognitive dissonance of, Oh, wait a minute. Am I supporting somebody who might be actually expanding government and fix it instead of doing that? Yeah. Where's the tea party Are the tea party man for man, Trump supporters. Say that again. Are the Tea Party is every single Tea Partier now a uh, bona fide Trump supporter? Is any Tea Partier holding his nose to vote for Trump? I think there probably were some. Yeah, I think a lot of people didn't want to. I think a lot of people just couldn't stand the thought of Hillary. Yeah, I, I'm not objecting to that. I mean, at this whole show it would probably <laughs> lost a lot of people because it sounds like. I'm super negative on on Trump. I get I get the Hillary thing. I really do. I just what I don't understand is what happened to I, 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 the small government principled right. And I'm and I'm wondering if just by pretending it doesn't exist, which is what I feel like the mainstream media did this entire year and the libertarian party too, because they did not put out their real hardcore libertarians. So what, you know, does it just disappear? Does wishing make it so does, does the media have, you know, I think it doesn't, I think it does not have this kind of power, but it's, it, it can they just ignore you know how powerful my question to you is how powerful is the media can it just ignore these basic fundamental american values just ignore them never talk about them again and will that make them go away the media doesn't care about those values unless those values are at the forefront of something that's making a, a, a huge newsworthy story, then yeah, they'll be they brought into the conversation. It. Yeah. Unless it unless it serves a useful function for the agenda they're trying to push. Yeah. They're not going to talk about it. And you know what function it usually pushes? Something incredibly stupid, like the Casey Hickox thing where this uh nurse who worked for the CDC, by the way, the CDC intelligence unit comes back from an Ebola quarantine area and refuses to be quarantined. Do you remember that story? Yeah, I do. Yeah, and I and I I immediately knew she's like riding her bike around and stuff. Yes. Yes. And what she was personifying, whether she paid lip service to it or not, was being a libertarian. She wasn't I don't know if she was libertarian, but that's the kind of foolishness that's attributed to the libertarian principles that it's this extreme and maybe it is, but she was an operative of the CDC and it was a trap to make freedom seem reckless, even if it was just that kind of freedom. That's interesting. Yes. I think it is trotted out there. No. And then you see what happened to the Liberty 
uh, like Reason Magazine and Cato were both taken over by the Koch brothers. What's Cato? Cato Institute was, I believe, uh. co-founded by Murray Rothbard, who is uh, the father of anarcho-capitalism. He coined the phrase anarcho-capitalism. He was called Mr. Libertarian. Oh, so that's your guy. He's my guy. So he, uh, I believe, was instrumental also ultimately in founding the Mises Institute. That was founded by Lou Rockwell, who was a protege of Murray Rothbard. So, uh, you know, that gets complicated. But Cato, the Cato Institute was also, I believe, co-founded by Murray Rothbard, and then there was a schism, whatever, a rift. But ultimately, there was another rift now, or the final parting more recently, a couple of years ago, where the Koch brothers took over Cato, and Reason took over Cato. I mean, uh, took over Reason, Koch brothers too. And that's when you start, when I started seeing that it really just became uh, what the what socialists think is wrong with libertarianism, that it's just a, a useful idiots for corporate cronies for big business. And the perfect example I wrote about was when they they advocated hard for a ban on GMO labeling. So so the question was, do you require GMO lab- labeling or do you ban it? And the obvious libertarian answer is if you want to put a label on your product saying it doesn't have GMOs in it, go ahead. You know, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. So why would they say that? And they're saying because it's stupid and it will screw up business. It's like, yes, that's not economic liberty. That's business government. You know, <laughs> like that's fascism. You can't do that. So, uh, so I guess what, how folding this into what you're saying is, that they won't ignore it forever. They don't ignore it. They actually use it. It's important. It can corral people into thinking, you know, it's very tricky. I noticed this with the libertarian stuff. You, you find you're so desperate for people to express these uh, sublime principles. They're, they're good. They're moral. They're logical. They're true. And you have people who will express them well and champion them and have a platform and you are willing to accept compromise. Of course, why not? And that's really the whole thing is the essence of the Gary Johnson, William Weld uh, ticket. It's that everybody said, Gary Johnson said, give me William Weld because they vote separately for president, vice president. Give me William Weld. Or give me death. (laughs) Or give me death. Exactly. So he said that he wanted the money, the funding, the platform, whatever. But what's the point when they took the money and the platform to make libertarians look stupid because William Wells was a shill for Hillary Clinton, which was predictable and knowable. So they will always use this stuff. He was openly supporting Hillary the whole time. So I feel what you're saying. Like it almost would be better – if they actually pushed it completely underground, like in Demolition Man, you know, where they they pretended that the revolution or the resistance or the remnant didn't even exist, then at least you could uh, coalesce. But if they if they if they take over institutions that that claim to harbor these principles, they actually co-opt them, which 
would yeah. neutralize them. Yeah. And they do that with the language also. It's also the fact that the word liberty and freedom, like we did on the show uh, uh, on about a month true. ago, is, it can mean a million different things. So if they focus the, their, their audience's attention on freedom means this while ignoring the fact that it actually is kind of violating what freedom might mean, then people are going to think they're expressing liberty or expressing freedom. Freedom in the, in the propaganda, the mainstream propaganda on the right – Freedom means war. Exactly. That's it. I mean, you will see. Humanitarianism means, you know, killing a demon. There's somebody you want to believe is an enemy. Yeah. But freedom really is. and And you see it in the language they use about soldiers. I, I fought for your freedoms in Iraq. And I just don't, I can't make that connection. What freedom did we win? I respect the guys who went. They went after nine eleven, out of a, out of nothing but selfless patriotism. I mean, if you hear right. the Iraq guys, I, I would say the vast majority of them said they signed up right after nine eleven. Yeah, but I I just because. Well, those are the war aims. Can you? That that Can you tell, can you tell me what freedom was gained by invading Iraq? Well, it, it's there wasn't any that that's not that wasn't the intent. The freedom is the war aim. That that book I think that you might be reading now, uh, propaganda uh, in World War, and also Walter Lippmann's book Public Opinion talks a lot about this. Those are specifically the war aims that they can unite a bunch of diverging and conflicting interests under one umbrella and get them to fight for the same cause because that word means something different to each of them individually, but they can make them believe that they are unified in what they're fighting for. The the war and stuff isn't really for freedom, isn't really for uh, make the world safe for democracy. It's for economic plunder, but they're not going to get the public to fight for them if they say, hey, we're going over here to get oil, and I really don't like this other guy who leaves this country, so I'm going to get some revenge on People aren't going to fight for that, so they have to say, this is an enemy. We have to save these people, and you have to protect freedom. That's something but that they, everybody can they, unite. But what really aggravates me is – they say it's for freedom. They do not back that up at all. And then the reality is by going over there and blasting the Middle East to smithereens and spreading terrorism and refugees like wildfire, the direct result is an extreme curtailment of our freedom here at home, 5,000 miles away, where exactly. we would have been completely safe from all that nonsense. Let them kill each other if that's what they want to do. It's none of our business. And I, I, you know, if they're saying they were doing it for the freedom of the people over there, that's another canard, if if I'm even using that word correctly, that, you know, like a red herring, something that's not the real issue. Because what's happening is when you take out Morsi or Hussein or Gaddafi or Assad, what inevitably happens, at least that's what we're told, is that the prisons open and all these terrorists get out. And then and they're like, well, those are dictatorships for a reason. They need to lock those people up without trial because they're so dangerous. And then I look here at Gitmo and wherever that's leading, where they want to get rid of due process. As Manchin said, the West Virginia, I think, senator said due process is killing us right now. So so (laughs) we're fighting that war to defend the due process of the people over there. And as a result, we're losing due process over here. It's absolutely upside down and it makes me crazy and that's right you know, but they one get, of the things they get people, i just 
it's war fervor. They they get people. They identify people have to feel like they have a personal emotional stake in in a yes. war to go fight it. So and they get people yes. focused in on that. And it's tunnel vision. It's all tunnel vision, and it's all it's a higher moral purpose and all that other stuff. People don't. I mean, like you said, people who go fight in these wars. I I have. I mean, I respect them. It's it's a. It's an amazingly brave thing to do, but the governments manipulate their population into believing that wars are about something that they're not truly about. And a lot of those guys come back knowing the truth and having real skills, and yeah. that's why they are, they want to tell them uh, they want to restrict their gun ownership and stuff. I, I've had I've had emails about that that they feel disrespected because you are the one who knows how to use a gun and you have to beg for it. But I I want to point out, and then I have to take a quick break that. Here's an example of trial and error or attempt and failure is that the left – so George W. Bush's wars and war aims and excuses got real long in the tooth, and, and the Republicans lost power because of it. So when yeah. Obama wanted to carry on the exact same foreign policy, he tried to use the excuse of humanitarianism. So you'll remember when we first were trying to invade Syria – or John Kerry was literally begging. I believe he might have even used the words, the words, I beg you, to shoot Tomahawk missiles into Damascus to save the children who had been attacked by chemical weapons. I'm not kidding. It was absolutely crazy. And, and it wasn't the Assad who shot off those chemical weapons. It was the rebels, which I actually put on YouTube a video of that Fox put up of the rebels shooting off the chemical missiles. And they were talking about Assad, but it was clearly a bunch of ragtag rebels operating out of a cave. So there was nothing there, but they were trying to use the humanitarian excuse and they did not get the war they wanted. And a year later, ISIS popped up and then they could use the defense excuse. And let me yeah. just tell you, the, the principle at stake there, everybody knows, especially on the right, the individualists, the real American values, that you can't – the non-aggression principle, which is a fundamentally libertarian principle, you cannot aggress towards people who have not aggressed towards you with actual violence. That's self-defense. Humanitarianism is not an excuse for good people to go to war. The left tries to use it because they don't, they don't accept that uh, – non-aggression principle, but because they believe in the redistribution of wealth and stuff, they cannot go to the map for that. Right. And I will say um, that right now, right now, what they're doing with Russia, and you hear it in the language they're using, they're saying, we've been attacked by Russia. Russia has, it's an act, act of war that Russia has committed yeah. against us. So they're trying to make it seem as though, yes, exactly. Which is an act of war. Yeah. So they so, make it seem uh, like yeah. we're, we're on the defense. So we're not acting first. Right. But they, they ha tried to get Americans to be okay with the humanitarian intervention. And we yeah. just, they could not. So that, I mean, I, I just, I try to tease out what they can and cannot manipulate about human nature and ideology and positions. Uh, I would, I have to take a quick break. I want to just tick off, if you would do it with me, the, um, reasons where i think this russian american dialectic is going okay i want to read something too when you get back that relates to that okay so supposedly google and facebook i don't know if we talked about this or i wrote an article about it but over the past few weeks google and facebook have been 
cited repeatedly over and over again as trying to address this fake news problem. And the fake news problem arose after the election. So they unrolled this policy because I know somebody who got banned from Facebook also. So they unrolled this massive censorship policy on Google and Facebook virtually overnight because yeah. they were saying that they were – but I don't believe that. I think this is the kind of thing that takes like a year to develop. Right. So they are – they decided to censor by choking off so they don't have to pass a law. It's not Congress. It's not really the First Amendment. They just choke off the – your ability to make money which will silence alternative media. Exactly, yeah. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> I don't care. I don't I haven't seen penny one. I don't care. It doesn't make any money. It's just that if that's what we depended on, well some people do depend on it. That's yeah, their- hopefully I would rather be able to do a show you know, I would like just to make enough to get babysitters every day so I could do the show every day. But um but yeah, I mean people could make a living, real journalists can make a living this way by accessing people directly without having to get the buy-in of mainstream media, but now they're being choked off. So this is how the internet being a limited hangout launched by the Defense Department through the university system is being reined back in so that yeah. they can control the information we get and they they can access all the information we get. It blows my mind too because the mainstream media was at – the trust level was at an all-time low right before the election. The inst- an institution is just totally just destroyed. Nobody trusts them, and now that same institution is telling people what is fake news and what is not while also delivering fake news on a regular basis. I mean how often do people actually go and check the facts of a story when that story satisfies uh, a need that they have or a feeling like if somebody wants to well, believe that uh, a woman got a, a birth yeah. ripped off her head while a bunch yeah. of people were chanting yeah. Trump on a train and, and then right. she was kicked downstairs. <laughs> I mean that That's was a, a true fake, fake story. story. Yeah. <laughs> You're recounting a true story of a fake story. You're not going to see a headline story saying we were wrong. It's just – and people are going to go on believing that because they, they didn't go find well, out that it was fake. Here's the funny thing is that at the same time – This censorship thing is coming down the pipe. The propaganda thing is coming up the pipe. So I look at that. I used to call it the total surveillance state. Bush Bush's program is called total information awareness. And its motto was knowledge is power. But I'm looking. So I said, okay, Obama was the surveillance president, which was true. And the next president who I thought was Hillary would be Hillary was going to be the censorship president. Now it's Trump, and it's still going to be the censorship president, but there are three prongs to total information control, which is surveillance, which does a few things. It chills the information flow. You just don't even put the information out there because you know somebody's watching. It's called the panopticon. Look it up. Uh, It detects pre-crime, like through social media. Total surveillance will identify people who have crimey thoughts, yeah. And and some of those crimey thoughts are religion. <laughs> you know, that's Islam is a religion. I mean they they're going to attack okay, nobody likes it, right? So or whatever, it's got a bad rap, so they'll attack that first, but everybody knows, you know, you're going to start with the one nobody can relate to, nobody cares about the tiniest minority. 
and then you generalize those rules. But and then surveillance also, of course, gathers information, all of it. Yeah. <laughs> but the other, but the next step of the total, it's not. I don't call it the total surveillance state anymore because I see phase two opening up, which has flip sides of the same coin. One side is censorship, where they control the information flow going to you. And then the other is uh, propaganda, where they're actually generating the propaganda that's going to fill those channels up again, like we were talking about in the NDAA. What was it called? The Portman Murphy uh, bill or amendment? Where they something, yeah. Yeah, they are they are allocating NDAA is an is an allocation of money. I think the National Defense Authorization Act is really about money getting allocated, and they allocated a big chunk of money to actually producing propaganda, which they called counter propaganda to counter foreign propaganda, anti American foreign propaganda. But but what you see is censorship choking off some news and actually. And then the government actually uh, producing news that they say it contains factual narratives, but in reality, it's meant simply, and it says also, to create narratives, to promote narratives that support America's goals. Exactly. Well, yeah, That's America's goals. <laughs> so, but, but this total information control is going to be facilitated by the Russian hacking or the Russian enemy dialectics. So yeah. the propaganda stuff is 100% as a result of the Russian um, generate saying that Russians are generating the fake news. The censorship comes from Russians generating fake news. So they need the yeah. counter propaganda and they need the censorship. And then, of course, the surveillance is, you know, that's what the Islam thing is used for. There's another story that I saw today where the victims' families from the Orlando shooting at Pulse are suing Facebook, Twitter, and I think it's Instagram maybe. And that is another way where it could lead to – for allowing radicalization to happen on their – Oh, wow. Well, on a side note, the owners of the Pulse nightclub – they closed it down. They they were paid a million or several million dollars from the city of Orlando as uh, to like convert the pulse into a landmark or something. So a landmark, you, like a Disney uh, yeah. attraction. <laughs> I don't know the, about the, that. The pulse, the pulse experience. Oh God, it's terrible. The pulse I don't experience. think they're going to actually do anything with it. But I'm just saying, if you think. That these operations are false flag events, and you wonder why everybody goes along with it. It's a false flag Get- ride at Universal Studios. Pulse. <laughs> there is a trench warfare exhibit in the Imperial Museum, I think, in London, where you go through it, and it actually like smells like pee, and it shakes. Why would you and want it? <laughs> Anywho, uh, so. So let's go. So can we tick off the things that? Well, for I really don't want to move on yet because I'm I'm kind of staggered at how fast the censorship is coming down on Facebook and Google, which was those two outlets were flagged starting with the November fourth article I highlighted about Vernon Jordan saying the big tech are the guys who have to censor the news for us. Yeah. So this is kind of, this is happening. This is now we're, we've already been victims of it. Yeah, I mean we've been victims of it for a long time. We just haven't known about it, like you said. They've been. I mean, Facebook has been manipulating people's yes, feeds a for a point. while. 
They did yeah, that experiment I, where they manipulated yeah. the emotions everybody got so mad about. Yes, but they but they absolutely weight things one way or the other, and that was well known. That's the funny thing is that there were articles written about how Google's treatment of the election would could and of course therefore would you know uh determine the outcome of the election so they knew they had that power and you got to wonder what's coming if they were complicit or at least could have made the difference but it but it's it's a little scary but yes we are and also i have noticed that like on youtube videos that just get stuck at like 500 hits they just don't they just don't move from there and you know because you can see on your website or whatever that that thing is getting hit that that blog post is getting hit but they just don't want to want things to look like they're getting critical mass i guess i don't know yeah they say that they're checking the like if it gets too many hits from the same ip address or something like somebody sits there and watches their own video a hundred times oh all right well but they're also you know censoring it as well there there there's definitely some censoring going on yeah i think so because when i complained about it it just it went up again it stopped doing that no, really? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. So anyway, um, but I just wanted to tick off a few things that I know that I think are, I mean, this is like super, super big picture what to watch out for. Uh, can I read these, goal, these propaganda goals first? Because I oh, think. Oh, um, yeah. Sorry. I didn't realize. Go. All right. Now, this is from a 1956 book. It was written by somebody, a government social scientist, and it's called Propaganda Analysis. And this is the possible goals for preparatory propaganda to a major action. The goals of propaganda directed to domestic, directed at domestic or friendly neutral audiences. In the case of major actions expected to have a deprivational effect on the domestic audience, the goals of the propaganda reduce the possibility of shock effect as by hinting at the nature of a forthcoming action in gradually more explicit terms combined with appropriate assurances. Number two, manipulate blame responsibility for the deprivation. Number three, identify and reinforce the reaction pattern which the elite would like its own people to adopt when the prepared action takes place. Number four, strengthen the public's predisposition to accept demands to be made upon it by the elite in connection with the intended action. Number five, lay the basis for moral justification of a forthcoming action. And number six, prepare for a better understanding of the of the necessity for the forthcoming action by prior disclosure of estimates and expectations upon which it is based either in the real ones or the chosen ones for their propagandistic value in achieving the desired public acceptance. Hold on a second. What year? What is the source here? 1956. And the book is called Propaganda Analysis, written by Alexander George. It was for the Rand Corporation. Are you finished? Yes. Okay, dude. I wrote an article about predictive programming. It was really just, it was a glossary entry. So I just described what it was. And I got like some, a little bit of, you know, somebody commented like, you're an idiot. <laughs> Those kind of incisive comments. So because you can see things, there are coincidences like, you know, oh my gosh. The Simpsons Marathon, I tried to record the two episodes. One was Trump being president, 
That was from 2000. And one that had the 9-11 brochure for New York. That was from 1997. So I found the episode numbers and I found them on my TiVo and I recorded them. The Trump one came through but did not have the scene in it that is widely cited as being um, Trump and Homer go down the escalator together just the way Trump and Melania went down the escalator together on, when he announces. So it wasn't in the episode. I don't know if it was um, excised or if it was never there and that was like a, a myth. But the 9-11 episode, which was I, – I thought it would be a nothing burger. It's just a piece of paper that has a, a dollar sign, a number nine, and then the Twin Towers in the back. So it looks like 9-11. Right. They go to New York. Would not record. That's crazy. I went back to look at – so anyway, but my point – it was crazy. And I had texted to you saying – I wonder if they'll actually play this episode or if they'll like switch out a different episode and, you know, think nobody will notice, but it, it simply didn't record. So, I, I mean, I'm going to say it's a could have been a coincidence, but it was weird because I thought it would happen and that did happen. But <laughs> it's but The Simpsons is accused of predictive programming that they yeah. have stuff in there that gets people ready for this idea. And then like the classic one was the lone wolf pilot in spring of 2001, which showed hijackers, uh, I think, was it remote control crashing a plane into the World Trade Center? Oh, you're talking, you know about, what the, I'm talking the, about the X-Files spinoff. Yes, I think it's called Lone Wolf, isn't it? Uh, I don't think well, it's lone called Lone Survive. I know. Okay. I don't, but I, I know what you're talking about, though. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, they were flying. It was a terrorist plane. The plane was hijacked by terrorists. And it was being remote control flown into the World Trade Center, and then they whipped it up and saved it at the last minute. And isn't one of the theories of nine eleven that it was remote controlled? Yes, that is one of the theories. The lone gunman is what it's called. Lone gunman. That was it. That was it. It's pretty amazing. What's amazing about it is that, but I think it was like Bush, Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, and I know Donald Rumsfeld because I actually, well, I saw him say we were looking outside the U.S., not inside. So we completely missed all the threats internally. Right. So, but they were saying no one ever thought of a plane. Hitting a building, <laughs> like really that's a projectile a, a hitting a skyscraper. And when you think about the fact that we do spend almost a trillion dollars a year on defense, the only legitimate function is to keep physical projectiles from crashing into physical things <laughs> yeah. within our physical boundaries. That's what we're paying them for, <laughs> right? You, you know, we've kind of like if you put it in. $2,016, I think we've probably spent like $100 trillion on that over the years. Yeah. Uh, and um, The correct title for that book, I said the wrong wrong title. Yeah. It's actually Prediction of Political Action by Means of Propaganda Analysis. And they wrote the book because they were Come trying on. to – Yeah, that's, what it's, that's the title of it. And they were trying to predict the actions of – he did an analysis of Nazi actions, and they were trying to create a model of prediction for future use. What do you mean create a model of prediction for future use? See, predicting Co what, what dictators analysis. will do? Yeah, pr predicting, what, predicting what the opposing country uh, are going to do by the actions they're taking, like in the media, like what their media expresses. That's a and cover. They're just making a blueprint for the guys who need it. Oh, here. yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. yeah. okay, sorry. For but both. they are all blueprints. You find the best stuff. I mean, I really, that book that I'm reading by Laswell, it's just... 
fascinating. It was yeah. like uh, my jo- I'm always looking for the smoking guns, and they're there. Right. Yeah. Laswell. He's all. He was well entrenched in the elite. And he's telling them how to do what they need to do. That's the funny thing about these propagandists is that I read it as expose. They're writing instruction manuals. Right. It's, yeah, for practical action. It's really, I I could be an unbelievable nerd. It could be (laughs) that. that, Like my jaws, I was with a friend uh, and I, she asked me what I was reading and I was like, this book is amazing. National security and individual liberty. <laughs> and she's like, sounds really great, Monica. Yeah, it's in it's in a gray cover. Like it just doesn't even have a dust jacket. She's like, wow. That's I was like, it's a think tank report from 1950, and it is a it is a page turner. <laughs> no, it's really. But I'll tell you, I love it, that it, stuff it, too. it it is good. I mean, I know I'm sounding like a nerd just saying that I'm a nerd because well, it is nerdy. Telling you how they manipulate us, and this is what drives. Yes, me it's crazy. the smoking gun. When people ask me, "How do you know?" It's like, how do you know there's predictive programming? Oh my gosh, because my friend's reading a book like, from 1956 like, saying how to use predictive programming. Books that tell us what they're doing, and I'll tell somebody <laughs> yeah. that. Like, no, I don't think that's that's. I think you're just no. I'm telling you, that's what they. They said, yes. and, and, and they ask you they, and I'm like, well, here is a list of 20 names who was paid for the study. And, and this like, is who they're giving to. I don't, like, no. I don't know who that guy is. I mean, what do they expect you to say? I, I got a, I got a, a handwritten letter from George Washington saying how the country is going to manipulate. Nothing will satisfy. But you could, you could have that. That's why people are getting mad at the Pizzagate thing. Well, I'm like, I don't know what's really going on with that. They're getting mad because there's so much evidence, but that, that stuff can be really manipulated like that's why these things are so interesting because they're really like think tank reports this one that this guy was a yale law professor and he's writing it he doesn't think some uh alternative news person's gonna read it 65 years from then and and use it against him he doesn't care because he knows they're crazy if they did and it doesn't matter see that's the thing about the report from iron mountain they correctly said so this was some people said it was a hoax but it's just like all these other books it just was Uh, whatever made public and it was quite uh, consolidated there was a lot in it but um who is that economist john kenneth galbraith was invited to be on the panel and he didn't he couldn't do it because he was busy but he wrote a review of it and he said the only thing i object to in the findings of this report or the author who wrote it is that i don't think the u.s people are ready for this kind of truth and then but in the book itself it says we were never even told it was classified or asked to keep it confidential because they all knew that even if it were made public, nobody could or would ever do anything about it. You know, that, that reminds me. Down. Yeah, that reminds me of something else that Solinsky talked about, or Alinsky talked about. And uh, this is very much Ar- Aristotle rhetoric, but speaking to the experience of the people that you're trying to influence, when you speak outside of their experience, it scares them and makes them afraid. And, and a yeah, that creates cognitive dissonance. So if you're if you're telling people something that they've never even fathomed, like n- not only have they they not experienced it, they they 
they can't even imagine it being something that's reality. It's just going to create cognitive dissonance, and they're going to reject it automatically. And when it comes to these these pedophile cases, most people haven't researched the the history of pedophilia. Like it goes all the way back to the time of Plato. I mean, to, to the rise of civilizations, really. And they haven't done the research on. And they and why would they do the research on it? They have regular lives, and not, there's no reason for them to do that. So and the definition changes. It, ex- exactly. By the way, you know, like some people are uh, right. That's true. I think. The Blessed Mother is 14, and um, one of my favorite writers, Will Durant, I think his wife was 14. Right. And – or just e- even the idea – Sorry, that but, I, but yes, that was always a you know, young – It's so outside of the their object realm of, of reality. The fact that there might be elites that get together and rape children is so far outside of their realm of reality that when they hear it, it's just, it just bounces off of them. Like that's crazy. There's no way that's going on because I've never – even considered that possible. Yeah, that's the thing about the allegory of the cave. Is yeah. this? I, you know, I was never. I mean, I dropped out of high school. I ended up at Harvard and stuff, but I didn't. The, where you really learn this that's, stuff that's is that's such a jump right there. I dropped out of high school. You know, I ended up at Harvard. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Okay. There's some steps we missed there. Sorry, there's. It's a long, long story. But I dropped out of high school. I went to community college for a couple of years. I went to Harvard for a couple of years. I graduated from Harvard. And I ended up going to graduate school and everything. It was totally like mainstream after that. But uh, I You're like Obama's did, grandma who was working at her wait who's working as a waitress one day, and then oh, she's the president of a big bank. Uh, yes, but I I can fill in all the dots for you. I know okay. it sounds like a crazy story. So anytime you want to have a uh, getting personal episode, we yes. can interview I know, each I'm other. Teasing you. I've heard some of it before. I'm just uh, the way. That's yeah, no, going. I'm happy to be teased about that stuff. But I so but it that's what like Obama's story. Obama went to a super elite high school, and it's the high schools. <laughs> right. If you read stuff by John Taylor Gatto, it's the high schools where you learn. The real theory of human nature, how to be a leader, how to manipulate people. I mean, it's called rhetoric and debate and stuff. You know, it's called leadership. It's called politics. They teach it to you. And I never learned it. I never learned the classics. I feel like all the knowledge was probably I I read a quote once. I'm still puzzling over it and can't remember it word for word. But it's something like all thought is great. All thought. Uh, is Greek in nature or originated in Greece. And I and, and I mean, there's some choose that. But I, I, this is all by way of saying I'm going to tell you what I think about Plato's allegory of the cave. But uh, I'm not formally educated in that way. And I, I don't know. But they yeah. they the guys are in the shadow. One guy leaves. He sees the sunlight. It takes him forever to be able to see in the sunlight. But he does. And he comes back to try to tell them. And they uh, try to or actually kill him for it. And so that's yeah. the first thing. They kill him for it. But the second thing, I was like, wow, I'm pretty sure that is the story of both Socrates and Jesus. And and Socrates, Plato wrote, uh, as you know, of Socrates, but he was before Jesus. So it was both a reflection and a prediction of what happens when when you do what you're describing. I don't want to be too grand, grandiose or think I know everything. I just that's what I'm getting from that. And and I think what you're yeah, you, saying you're about right, how it yeah. scares people, yeah. yeah I mean, I feel it, like it does. Yeah. The way he the way he describes it is if if 
a group of people have lived their entire lives facing a wall and there's chains on their necks and their, their, their legs and they've never been able to turn. And behind them, there's fire thrown up against the wall. So it's creating shadows and there's puppets like a, uh, you know, a puppet show. So people are walking behind, they're holding sticks of animals and of, you know, people and the shadows on the wall. That's all the people have ever seen. So they, in their own – the experience that they know, they believe that those are real people, and they believe the voices they hear are coming from those shadows. If someone breaks free and leaves and goes outside, they would see the sun for the first time, and that sunlight, it would be hard for them to, to, to handle. They would have to look away. It would be very piercing for them, but then slowly but surely they would normalize to it, and they would start to see – they would see clearer and clearer, but that initial shock of that first bit of sunlight is unbearable. But after they are out there and they, they are used to it and they see clearly finally for the first time, they go back inside the cave and they tell of their experience to all these people who have only ever seen the shadows, and those people think he's crazy and they kill him. They would kill him. That's essentially the allegory. That's the very uh, rough version yeah. of the allegory of the cave. Yeah, yes, yeah, you're yeah. Exactly right. That's exactly. I what agree. Pedophile and thing. I, and I, and I think you can hang it on uh, actual figures from history who have done it. Yeah. And have have met have been killed for it. And I, Hans Hermann Hoppe brought up the excellent point that the Socrates and Jesus were the greatest men to ever walk the earth. And they were both killed by democracy. I, I, I got I to tell sick. you. Yeah, well, it's true. Reading, yeah, they were both voted to death for doing no wrong. Reading Plato is one of the most, at least for me, it was one of the most mind-like expanding experiences. The first time I ever read it. But like you'll read like this amazingly insightful just – it, like this this passage that just changes you, and then the next line or the next passage will be some pedophilia. I'm like, whoa, where did that come from? <laughs> Pederasty, I believe. Or, or, Pederasty, uh, yeah, which is for they, boys. Right, whatever they called it back then. But yeah. Little boys are pederasty. Little girls are pedophilia. The fathers would give their sons to aristocrats yeah. back then. Yeah, Plato is – I believe I get the mind bending stuff, and I also his ideas of raising children for the good of society and suborning individual freedoms and desires for yeah. the social unit is super scary. Oh, and yeah. Aristotle, who I don't think yeah. is as like clear and mind blowing as Plato, but I don't, you know. Bear in mind, I don't know anything. So I just feel like Aristotle at least gets the individual thing right. And then they say that that the reason I like Aristotle is that the Catholic Church, which is what I was raised in, used Aristotle to justify, I guess, you know, this is where, when it gets kind of really cynical that the Venetians, the bankers – not Venusians. <laughs> not, I always think of the people who run the world. People think of the, the Venetian bankers or like the lizard people, which are the Venusians. Yeah. Um, sorry, I had to throw the lizard people in there. But that they that they wanted to justify their greed. So they used Aristotle's moral foundation of individualism yeah. and uh, – Instead of Plato's, which would was also which was actually what the Catholic Church was living in Europe, in that they had these communal things. Commun you know, they lived in monasteries and stuff where it was communal. They all gave together, and then 
the people who were most suited rose to the top and it was just uh, society was the the primary so it was the primary unit not the individual so it's it's kind of interesting if you think of those plato and aristotle as being the two competing moralities in the world maybe forever and and that's what we're still struggling with today that we were maybe founded on the aristotelian idea but they try to use plato to get the power at the top i think yeah, we might yeah. might have gone too far there <laughs> you're going way I think deep we went too off track i went to, way 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 off track so anyway maybe somebody basically that. they hijack these um these philosophers ideas to to serve their own agenda just use yes yes I, and and i think that's the whole reason why even if i do think uh, Aristotle was a banker's plot, you know, reviving Aristotle in the Middle Ages was a bankster plot. I, uh, the Plato's method of collectivism requires good faith leadership, which I don't think you can ever have, even if it starts that way. And, and this was a Greek experiment too. The Epicureans, I think, where like the first generation who was raised with morality. The who? Could, I think it was the Epicureans. They were raised with morality uh, and then they decided to be kind of hedonistic, do what you want, but they had fundamental morality. But the next generation of them were like their children were not raised with the old school morality. Right. So their their sensual sensualism was out of control because they had nothing to ground it. So I'm saying even if you took collectivism and you had that's what people were saying about Obama. Oh, he is the true benevolent socialist leader. It's like, OK, no, but then you but I know, no, I know, but they yeah, were thinking that right. and then you give them all this power and then somebody else takes over and look what happens. You want to Cal exit. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the generation. It falls off. And uh, Plato is, is entirely dependent on people suppressing all desire, suppressing the most powerful part about human beings. And Which that's is just the. Which the is emotion, emotional response, and, and passion. That's it, it, we we like to think we're logical and reasonable, but but we're, even the most reasonable person is dominated by their emotions. Even the most logical, well thought out person. You, you uh, see the, yeah, the, the totally. Star Trek episode where Spock is just going crazy when he has yes, to. Yes, a muck time, a muck exactly. time is the name time. of that episode. Right. Yeah, Come yeah. on, don't don't forget who you're talking to here. <laughs> yeah. Good call, but yeah, that's that's just that's why his his. His idea is impossible to happen, and we'd have to reach just an insane level of consciousness. And maybe that's what he was thinking, to be able to to make that a reality. Maybe, and maybe their world was so limited and miserable technologically and like comfort-wise that if if it were that much better, maybe people would get in line just to not have uh, total deprivation. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I am sorry that I took us so far afield. Let's get back on track and and try to close it up. Can we just do you want to did you want to tell more about that prediction propaganda book or can we you want to do what to watch out for? Can I finish my Russian? What's just the go. Point of the Let Russian you go stuff? finish what's on your uh, what's on your mind about the Russians. Well, the the big picture was just that they, they have to have an enemy. They need to create an enemy. It needs to be robust enough, big enough, complex enough, lasting enough to Specific justify. Enough. People need to be able to picture it. 
Yeah, it needs to be real to the people. And, exactly. and they have written about how people actually have to die or it won't scare scare enough people. So I guess that might lead me to think that Russia needs to be uh, blamed for actual death or something against Americans. So right. uh, for it to really work on us. And then, and then the purposes of having that would be uh, to just on a really banal, basic level of what, you know, just uh, like mercenary kind of level. Increase it's a symbolic. Defense. It gives people a symbolic reason to fight them when they have somebody or something that – like a building that collapsed and people died or a specific person that died. That gives people a reason to stand up and say, they did this to this person. Now we have to stop them. It makes it Yes, real. yes, to empathize and then they really get that it's – they can – feel that threat to them but on the one but one of the things that the people want that the the power wants is an an increase in defense spending just because that's what the military industrial complex lives for they they want war and geopolitical domination especially control of oil and gas supplies not i don't think it's so much u.s versus russia and who's going to control the oil and gas they absolutely cannot tolerate smaller countries having power over oil and gas so russia and the u.s could conspire to get syria to ally with russia that that the u.s would rather have syria ally with russia then be independent. They need a bipolar. They can't have a unipolar world. They're going to have a bipolar world. And maybe you need a bipolar world just so that people like Syria and all the little guys don't bind together. If they, if now what they do you get, mean by bipolar world? So if you if you have one superpower like the U.S., it, that that could make a bunch of people like there's an organization called the unaligned nations. I think they're called the unaligned nations. There's like 140 of them. And their argument is that we're not allies of a superpower. Okay. So, so if, so if that were to catch on and you had one superpower versus every single other person on earth, they might get control. They might actually have a bit an ability to control their own oil and gas on the land they populate. But if you have a bipolar world, Russia and the U.S., you might be able to pick them off one by one. Like if the U.S. went and attacked Russia, uh, Syria, Syria, instead of saying, hey, Venezuela and Bolivia, let's stick together, they'd have to say, oh, crap, Russia, I need you. And then Russia gets half the world, the U.S. gets half the world, and then they make a deal, you know? (laughs) So... So I just see that having this big enemy uh, and this idea of having to divvy up oil and gas among the great uh, – and power and land, everything among the great powers is an easier way, you know, to get it all at the top. So I just I just feel like the bipolar world might be what they need at this point to have the final convergence between East and West that Brzezinski talked about the true world authority, as the Vatican called it, the world government. Uh, and, you know, general political crisis seems to be on uh, the order of the day where they want us here at home to be at each other's throats. You know, I, I don't know why. I mean, there are, I can speculate, but they are really going for undermining faith in the system. When we did episode four and talked about strategy of tension, I read the quote, it was a campaign designed to lead to a breakdown of law and order and consequent collapse of public confidence in democratically elected government, 
precipitating a takeover by the army. So when I see Trump put generals in at every freaking level, generals, banksters and corporatists, everywhere you look up there, you you have to wonder if the authoritarian infrastructure that's being put in place is getting ready for, you know, the big civil conflict. Right. And yeah, you, you nailed that. And what you talked about a little while ago about about the values of like one well, one generation not you know transferring to the next generation because they didn't they didn't teach it like they were mm-hmm. taught. I think the same could be true when it comes to a president. For example, if Trump is the if he is as patriotic as, as he as he positions himself to be, but he's doing his I want to fix everything for people, but he's doing it through government. He's still expanding government, so he could do a lot of wonderful things. If he has that right intent, but yeah. as soon as he's gone, what what's left is an expanded, all power, even more powerful government for the next leader who might not do those things to step in, who might be a horrible dictator. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not even saying that he, whether he does or not understand. I mean, he might be completely innocent. He might think he's just exercising the art of the deal. This is how it works. He right. might not care. He might be completely in on it. I really don't know, but. Whatever's happening, it is by coincidence or by plan. It's being constructed in a way that could easily come together in uh, a form that uses the conflict to increase the authority at the top. And I I had a couple of other really, I thought, very interesting thoughts that – or at least one or two. This – when we – when the president gets up and says Vladimir Putin – got Trump elected at Hillary's expense. Do you know what kind of face that gives Putin? It, it gives him – you're right. He does, Everything that's going on over here makes him look good. It makes him look unbelievably powerful. To like his he people. Controls, he, yes, yeah, he to controls him. the government of the United States. Why on earth would anybody who really had – the U.S. interest at heart. Why does the media? Why do they? Why do they play nonstop, one hundred percent of the time, advertising for mass shooters and terrorist attacks? Why do they? You know, when I read these books, self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, and they and they give it so much lip service. And when I read these books from the fifties, these propaganda books, they absolutely you can tell it's a different time because they have to give lip service to. The idea that we're all trying to have full employment, a stable society, morals, property rights, you know, they absolutely don't say they say world government is the way to ensure all that stuff. But they could never get away with deliberate agitation, vagaries. Um, This stuff that's happening now clearly is not in our interest. The media and the government are working against our interests in the most basic terms and giving propping up Putin to a point beyond where he deserves, given their relative status. I mean, we spend almost 10 times as much as Russia on defense. We do not need to be scared of them. And we give them all this face. Right. But I don't think most of the population sees that. Though. I, I, I don't think the majority of the people see them. They, I, I completely agree. They are not acting in the best interest of the people. I think they're I think they're committed to World War Three 
whether it's you know whether it's real or whether they're working together, but they're committed to having Russia, the people of Russia, fight the people of America and whoever else gets into it. They're committed I, to that. Yeah. Thing. And, Either and, World War Three. Yeah, go finish. And I, I don't, but I don't. With Obama standing up there and saying that Russia undermined it and, and Trump won because of that, I don't think most of the population sees him as acting against the interests of the American people. I think the people who support Obama see him as trying to save the people. Yeah, it's what I'm talking about is a concept that is absolutely lost. I'm only even tapping into it because I'm reading this stuff from the mid 20th century. uh, And that's like my mother's generation. No, I see that. But But I have to say there was a red flag about how this moves towards World government, and you're saying we're moving towards World War Three. It either could be actual World War Three or Cold War Two, or just the threat right. of World War Three might be enough to usher in a true world authority with real power to tax and enforce things. The League of Nations came out of World War One. The United Nations came out of World War Two. World War Three or its proxy could definitely lead to the final culmination of world government. And I saw a, flat, a, a precursor to that or a prediction of that or uh, uh, softening us up for that. It was a CNN headline. Aleppo is an alarm bell, colon. The international system has failed. And and they call it in, in, in the 1950s book I'm reading, the Laswell book, he calls it the dangers uh, Russia is promoting the danger of international anarchy. So they want that whenever you hear about that international system has failed. Uh, We live in an international anarchy. There's a risk of war. The only way to not have war is to have this true world authority. That's what I think this is ultimately about. Oh, I agree. I I completely agree. In either way, they're pushing towards that. They're going to cause civil unrest here too. If if we don't get into world war three quickly, then they'll call some sort of civil unrest. They've got the the conditions are ripe for yeah. it. Yeah, and and using the national stuff, that nationalistic stuff on the right, the two biggest Trump supporters I know before Trump was even announced his candidacy, both of those people told me how much they like Putin, and Pat Buchanan was like that too. He, in a weird way, he's like a national, you know, a nationalistic hero. They really like that he is. Pro his country. But um, there was one more thing. Oh, the thing about Russia, it's interesting to me because Putin plays along with two big uh, U.S. creations, in my opinion, ISIS and Snowden. Those were two, in my mind, big creations, Snowden to usher in the total surveillance state, ISIS to usher in the endless war. And Putin could out us on that, but doesn't. And at the same time, RT has really, Russia today has, I think, like jumped the shark into pure, unadulterated propaganda, Russian propaganda. I used to watch it all the time. I loved crosstalk. And then it just got, really did seem propagandistic at the same time, by the way, that its founder was found murdered in Washington, D.C. So, really? I didn't know that. Yes, it was in March of this year. And, uh, You know, I just feel like Putin, you know, just to bring this whole show full circle, I feel like, you know, I feel like they're in on it. You know, I feel like they're 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 playing the same game. They're playing their roles. The roles are adversarial. People may die. War may happen. But it's it's there for I'm sure a complete revamping of the monetary system is part of the plan. 
And, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe for us, it doesn't matter. Like maybe this is just stuff that at the very highest levels, maybe doesn't affect our standard of living or what we perceive to be the limits of our liberty already, you know, but I, I can't help but think that they're cracking down on us talking. That can't be a good sign. <laughs> yeah, they are doing that. And, and they are, they are also spreading the, 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 concept of global government uh, across the country people are people think that it's bad to be a nationalist they think that it's racist they think that it's xenophobic mm-hmm. they think that global they think that going global is is the the thing to do but they don't realize like that that doesn't co- that that requires a shedding of values of of religion and, and assimilating to the values and whatever, which is determined by a far off leader that you, you have, like the whole idea of participa- uh, participatory government is that you have you you can yes. talk to the people who are in charge who yes. can get to them. When there's a global government, that's so far removed you you, you can't you, you can't say anything. You can't have thoughts that are different. I mean, and and it only comes through violent revolution. I don't think they realize that it's a sacrificing of our lineage. For the lineage of the few that benefit from global government. Yeah, that is for sure. But I see what you're saying about this playing into that because I I feel like this this whole thing has been undermining faith in the you know two sides of the coin undermining faith in the nation state here at home like people are scared of it that's what you're talking about but then the neo-nationalism that we're seeing on the other side of it is scaring the western world into begging for an overarching authority so like in europe when they see these nationalist movements popping up all over the place those people have been indoctrinated for decades with this you know the kind of socialist mentality they they I would say for sure they they make up the genuine majority of people in Europe, and if they think that an overarching authority like Brexit, you look at the Brexit vote as being a nationalistic movement. So people who are afraid of nationalism, or and and market with xenophobia and stuff like that, are then thinking, oh my gosh, man, I didn't realize how important the EU was. We need to cram everybody back in there or get something more powerful that can. Uh, keep this stuff, keep the lid on these nationalists. So I think that it is that we're being set up for reaction. Oh, absolutely. Reaction. And uh, on that note, reactionary. Uh, on that note, I is there anything else we want to touch on? I think we can probably wrap, wrap it up. up. Awesome. Well, sorry that we've been uh, focusing on the. Well, I've been focusing on <laughs> my kids being out of school and Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas, everybody. It's Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. I, this is the place to come for tidings of good cheer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm super cheerful. You can't let this stuff affect your day to day because I really think that Santa probably, Claus is a communist. <laughs> he's a red. He is yeah. red. And he's, an, he's actually an elitist. He's not a communist. He gives rich kids more stuff. <laughs> that's just yeah, he, gets people, he gives people stuff they don't want either. Like, you know, don't give me a bunch of junk that's just going to clutter up the house. <laughs> Santa brings a lot of junk that clutters up the house. <laughs> he doesn't bring anything really great. I get the great stuff so that I can hold it over their heads forever. Like, I'll take that nano away. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> I bought that. So, anywho, 
You should tell your story uh, about how you uh, about yes. how you you tricked your kids, but then you couldn't help but but blow your own cover and ruin your whole operation. Yes, I my kids. Um, I get this like health food and uh, Sunny Day or something like that, and I my I tri- I was eating the mac and cheese. And it was unbelievably delicious. So I got my kids to eat. Uh, my daughter to eat a bite. She's like, wow, that is unbelievably delicious. I said, I'll go get your brother. See if he'll eat it. She's like, and he comes in. He says, I heard there's some delicious mac and cheese here. I was like, okay, here. So I gave him the mac and cheese. And she's like, how did you, why did you make me go get him? There isn't enough for everybody. So she finally badgers him and badgers him when she's finished. And he gives her the rest of his and she starts to eat it. And I said, ha ha, you kids really do like sunny day. And they're like, they're like, no. It's like, yeah. It's like, no. So then, honestly, like one bite later, she says, his wasn't as hot as mine or something. I don't know. This is just uh, isn't as good as I thought. Honest to goodness, could not eat another bite. And now they'll never trust they, you again. Well, I didn't lie to them. But what actually infuriated me because of the power, you know, the power of suggestion. Think about like the power of that. I was so mad. I was like, that was psychological. She's like, no, it really doesn't taste as good. It's like, I know you think it doesn't. That's your mind. You know, it's like when be you aware one, when you expect to taste one flavor, but, but it ends up being something completely different. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and they, they've done tests like that with sommeliers, like real wine, uh, aficionados, guys who really know it, masters who take the tests and everything, and they'll switch labels. And the guys who I totally have faith that they, if there was no labels, they would have understood the wine completely. But they switched the labels, yeah. And the guys saw in the cheap label the cheap wine, and in the expensive label the expensive wine. And I, yeah. and I, you know what I'm saying? If without the labels, they would have understood it. But they were their minds played tricks on them. Which we is start so salivating and tasting things, you know, when we see labels associated with stuff. Yeah, Pavlov. All right, my dear. We uh, this is episode seventeen of the Propaganda Report. Episode sixteen will be posted later. That was our WSB show on Saturday. It's not up yet, but uh, I think let's try to do. Well, I'm going to have a big show, big WSB show, kind of looking back, seeing what our predictions were, seeing what we were, uh, what happened in 2016, and what I thought anyway was going to happen in 2016. And then we're also going to look ahead to 2017. So look out for the next couple of episodes. I hope they don't continue to get targeted by the powers that be. We'll see. Maybe we should chill ourselves and edit out anything. You know, I wish that we had been personally targeted, but I'm guessing that we were targeted by a bot, which is, you know, makes me feel both That's a real insult right there. And insignificant. Yeah. <laughs> All right. On that note, this concludes episode 17 of The Propaganda Report. See you later. Later. Have you had enough? Of the rubber stamp? Have you had enough? The wire tap.